the Religion and Civil Society uh, program at the CIS reflects upon questions of religious freedom, uh, both in Australia and uh, to an extent overseas. It also examines broader questions of religious value as they are confronted by the demands of cultural and religious diversity in contemporary Australian society. It is, I think, quite a remarkable program because we are a secular think tank and uh, we are including within it, nonetheless, um, a program that looks specifically at the way in which religion contributes to the health and vitality of a secular society. A core feature of the Centre's work has been to examine the role of voluntary institutions in a free and open society, and we recognise that religious groups make a very important part of that contribution to our society. Well, each year the Acton Lecture offers a platform for prominent individuals to offer their own reflections on issues arising from the place of faith in the modern world and on the ways in which faith interacts with a free society. The lecture does not concern itself with matters of discipline or dogma or organisation. In fact, nor does the CIS, for that matter. These are all we consider internal issues which all religious communities wrestle with from time to time. <clears throat> the issue, then, with which this year's Acton lecturer wishes to engage is that of the rights and limits of religion and conscience in contemporary Australia and the recovery of a form of civic virtue. Recent public debate has been quite heated, as you'll know, whether about a proposed plebiscite to amend the Marriage Act or about reform of Section 18C of the Racial Discrimination Act positions quickly become entrenched, making it difficult for those who, with opposing views to engage intelligently or even be heard above the din of the traffic. One of the concerns raised by the tone of uh, this, this tone of debate whether, is whether the fundamental rights to freedom of religion, freedom of conscience, freedom of speech, and freedom of, so of association will be upheld or whether they will be trumped by secular values. These are important questions for a modern liberal society. Does the principle of religious liberty even matter in modern statecraft? And if it does matter, how are the competing claims of conscience and law to be resolved? All demanding issues, and our lecturer intends to defend the continuing importance of conscience and civility and liberty in contemporary democracy. <clears throat> well, and so to our lecturer himself, Tim Wilson has an arts degree and a master's degree in diplomacy and trade. At the 2016 federal election, he was elected the Liberal member for Goldstein in Victoria. Before that, Tim had served as Australia's first so-called Freedom Commissioner at the Australian Human Rights Commission, where he was a vigorous and passionate and scrupulously fair and constructive advocate for liberty. And before going to the Human Rights Commission, Tim worked at the Institute of Public Affairs in Melbourne. And he's still only 36. <laughs> Tim is, in my view, one of the outstanding Australian Australians of his generation who will continue to contribute much to public life for many years to come. It's been a pleasure to get to know him during the course of my own work here at the CIS and to have been able to turn over ideas and issues with him from time to time. I'm delighted that Tim Wilson has accepted the invitation to deliver the Centre for Independent Studies Acton Lecture for 2016, Rediscovering Humility, Religious Freedom in a 21st Century Pluralist Society. And I invite you to welcome him now.
Well, thank you very much, uh, Peter, for that extremely kind introduction. But I should start with an apology, which is an apology directly to Peter, because he first booked me in to deliver the Acton Lecture in February and had to reschedule a number of times due to the fact that I was invited in my former capacity as Australia's Human Rights Commissioner, or as he said, uh, Australia's first and perhaps only Freedom Commissioner. And obviously since then I have changed roles. My title may have changed, but ultimately the issues have not. And that is why I appreciate your tolerance and understanding uh, in the opportunity to give the Acton Lecture as a Member of Parliament, in fact the 16th. Acton Lecture I counted uh, today. The opportunity to live this lecture followed my interest in religious liberty uh, in my former role. That interest came after a concern that religious liberty was increasingly being deprioritised or completely ignored, particularly by the human rights community. The Vice-Chancellor of the Australian Catholic University, Professor Greg Craven, has even gone so far as to say that he thinks religious liberty is now being treated as a subright and that legal psychologies these days tends to see religion as a restriction on rights rather than as a form of expression of freedom. And I share his concerns. But equally, my interest came from a concern that religious leaders and communities were responding very poorly to the issues that were arising and doing harm to themselves and their cause, particularly around the tensions of religious liberty and sexual morality. At the time, I concluded in my former role, who better to try and resolve these very complicated issues than a gay agnostic? <laughs> now that might seem like it's a joke, but in all seriousness, getting the conclusion of these debates right has as much impact on people like myself as it does of those people of faith. Because these debates set precedents for how freedom is cheated, treated in a more general sense and also decide whether debates are handled smoothly or finish with a bang. Like debates around freedom of speech, the different sides of these debates go to the heart of people's sense of security and place in society. While a technical choice, religion is closely intertwined with culture and often ethnicity. So simply dismissing it as a lifestyle choice diminishes its contribution to people's identity and it's why it must be taken very seriously and why important lectures such as this are a great blessing to the public discussion in Australia by the Centre for Independent Studies. The importance of religious freedom to liber liberalism is also considerable. It is closely associated with other important rights and freedoms, such as freedom of conscience and the exercise of other rights, such as speech, association and property rights. In his fourth Forgotten People speech, the founder of the party I represent, Sir Robert Menzies, said that we are a diversity of creatures with a div diversity of minds and emotions and imaginations and faiths. When we claim freedom of worship, we claim room and respect for all. And that is very much a tradition in which I engage with religious liberty. It is that respect for all that must always be the foundation of this discussion. And Acton's brilliant insights into the dangers of absolutism are as relevant to a pluralist society as they are to centralised political power. Religious freedom doesn't trump the rights and freedoms of others, but it is something to be recognised, respected and accommodated in discussions around the rights 
and freedoms of all. Put concisely by Acton, liberty is the harmony between the will and the law. A free society does not seek to homogenise belief or conscience, but instead affirms diversity and advocates for tolerance and mutual respect. If we are to preserve religious liberty in Australia, an increasingly pluralist society, it must be built on an understanding of the importance of humility. I am encouraged by St Augustine's mediation, meditation on the three paths that lead one to faith. The first is humility, the second is humility, and the third is humility. And if humility does not precede all that we do, our efforts are meaningless. Being humble is a quality that transcends individual faiths. Humility is a virtuous as it is antithesis, pride is a vice in Judaism. In the Quran, several Arabic words are used to convey the meaning of humility, including, and if I get the pronunciation right, tadar and kashar, under verse 23-1, which assign success to those who humble themselves in their prayers. Acton has also declared that there is not a more perilous or immoral habit of mind than the sanctifying of success. Lifting up the virtue of humility offers us a channel for reconciliation between secular and religious individuals and communities. The capacity of modern Australia to unite depends on the peaceful coexistence and mutual compatibility between those of faith and those without. Instead of seeking differences and division, Humility offers a pathway to understanding and acceptance. And more than anything, advancing religious liberty requires asserting it back into a discussion around justice in society. As Acton said, the object, object of civil society is justice, not truth, virtue, wealth, knowledge, glory or power. Justice is followed by equality and of liberty. So the state of uh, religious freedom in Australia today is, to put it bluntly, unsettled and perpetually evolving. It is one of the few rights that is explicitly protected in our constitution, prohibiting the Commonwealth from making laws for establishing any religion, imposing any religious observance, or prohibiting the free exercise of any religion under section 116. Yet many people of faith feel that changes of government laws increasingly dismiss or deprioritise de religious liberty, as I outlined with remarks from Greg Craven earlier. For example, state governments have been reviewing anti-discrimination laws and look likely to water down some provisions around respecting the freedom of religious service providers to employ staff and adopt practices consistent with their faith traditions. Now, I don't plan to enter the specifics of these debates since I'm a federal representative and there's no end to what states get up to but to highlight that they reflect a growing tension within Australian society about the place of religion. Not that that is particularly new. In his speech to the 1897 Constitutional Convention, our first Prime Minister and then future Prime Minister, Edmund Barton encapsulated the view of the role of government over religion at the time, that, quote, the whole mode of government, the whole province of the state, is secular. The whole duty is to render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. Secular expression should be left to secular matters, while prayer should be left to its proper place. End quote. Barton's words are apt because they highlight the binary lens through which most people look at the relationship between religion and the state. 
in the 21st century, there are many more shades of grey. Now, the Constitution does make it clear Australian law and government is secular. The grey is where government ends and society begins, and whether we are a secular or pluralist society. A secular society is one respects religious liberty, but recognises its place as primarily a private practice. Faith ends, broadly speaking, at the temple door. It has a limited place in the public square. There is no room for religion in public institutions, such as schools and hospitals. Equally, unless they want to accept secular strings, religious institutions can't accept public monies to deliver services to the community. A pluralist one respects that, like other individual characteristics, faith informs all aspects of people's lives. Public institutions reasonably accommodate faith and religious institutions are not discriminated against simply because of wanting to act consistent with their traditions. Instead, they are embraced as a way of delivering a diversity of services to the community. These different approaches fundamentally inform how different political parties see and approach issues of religious liberty. The Greens are in the secularist camp. The Liberals and Nationals, broadly speaking, are in the pluralist camp. Labor used to be in the pluralist camp. Today, they are drifting towards the secularist one, with a diminishing understanding, understanding of religious liberty and how it plays an important part in people's lives. That shouldn't be an interpretation, uh, interpreted as being partisan politicking. I think it's a pretty fair and accurate reflection of where we are today. The consequence of these two defining approaches essentially informs whether the space for religious liberty in Australia is large or small. And the future of religious liberty in Australia is up to religious communities. In his recent Menzies lecture, the Australian's editor-at-large, Paul Kelly, rightly pointed out that the broader cultural picture facing the Western world today is challenging. The near-universal set of cultural values, quoting Kelly, that united Western democracies for much of the 20th century in war and in peace is disintegrating. The axioms of life once unchallenged are falling apart. We don't agree anymore on the meaning of marriage, on how we should die, on how children should be raised, on the structure of family life, on freedom of speech, on whether religion should be retained in the public square, on the meaning of multiculturalism, and ultimately on what is, what is virtue. Pivotal to its fragmentation is the decline of a shared religion and broad form of Christian faith. It once rated at more than 90% if there was a replacement credo. It could be called authentic individualism. That is, a new faith of sorts inspired by the idea the moral course is to be true to oneself and to stand up for the values that define your identity. Now, we can debate the consequences of this change in cultural norms extensively. The trend towards it started long ago. Through the pace of its adoption does appear to have sped up recently. I have my own very deep concerns about the rise of authentic individualism, as Kelly refers to it, one of which is that it would allows people and encourages people sometimes to define themselves by their difference over their points of unity. And in the context of religion, many of the identities that people define themselves by hold traditional grievances or feel they have been unjustly treated by some religious faiths and in practice often have been. More broadly, it creates problems in the design of law, 
including how to treat everybody equally when tensions between secularism and pluralism and people's faith collide. And this is why humility matters. If faith communities and leaders approach the tension between pluralism and secularism based on religious liberty trumping the freedom of others, then the space will be small and will shrink. If faith communities and leaders recognise their freedom as akin to the need respect for the freedom of others, then the space can be large and stable. More importantly, religious people can be part of correcting the drift toward authentic individualism and back to a greater sense of shared culture. That will not be achieved when lobby groups and communities only talk to themselves, because engagement is necessary for civility and to breed mutual respect. There is still a lot of analysis to be done about Donald Trump's victory in the United States, and there are a lot of armchair critics. Outside of capital cities, it is clear, though, that the Republicans dominated. There is a clear disconnect between well-paid service sector workers who live on the east and west coasts and in major cities and the people who work in the primary extractive and manufacturing industries that create wealth. Economic problems in the United States that have fared poorly in the adjustment resulting from globalisation and suffer the consequences of overregulation and moratoriums have also clearly fed into broader discussions around the direction of that country. But I'm going to leave those subject matters and topics for another day. Because while there is an economic disconnect, the other disconnect has been around values and culture. History shows that when people don't feel economically secure, they look to question the circumstances that surround them, including who benefits and who loses. And that is where the role of culture comes into the discussion. The need for a cultural confidence is greatest when people feel insecure. Underpinning cultural confidence is a broader confidence in where people see their pathway and opportunity in life, as well as their place in society. In Western liberal democracy, the perception by many is that the space for cultural confidence has been under assault for decades, and it's come from both internal and external sources. The external factor has come from migration, from people of traditionally non-aligned cultural and religious backgrounds without sufficient attention or expectation of economic and cultural integration. For many years, we've had an official policy of confused multiculturalism. Confused because we haven't settled whether new Australians are being expected to integrate into our culture or are we supposed to respect the preservation of theirs? That has been coupled with the internal rise of cultural relativism and identity politics. Cultural relativism ascribes an equivalence to other cultures, even when incomparable with the Western liberal tradition. The relationship between culture and religion, and particularly a culture of religious tolerance, is anchored in that tradition. So we're getting a disconnect of values, because freedom and our freedom and the traditions we value sit within a context. We have the institutions and culture to preserve that freedom, and it comes uniquely from our civilization. But for it to be preserved and allowed to breed tolerance, it requires a commitment from people to support those institutions and their cultural accompaniment. That's why, despite passionately describing myself as a liberal, particularly as a social liberal as well as an economic liberal, 
I am also a proud cultural and institutional conservative. It is because I appreciate that my social liberal positions in particular, in, uh, in particular around believing in the freedom of others, depends on the preservation of our culture and our institutions. Instead, as other cultural values are being given equivalence, many people no longer see where they fit in their country. Many who used to be part of their majority simply can't see their place in modern society. Worse, that they feel demonised for their place in society. In an article in the New York Post last week, columnist Selena Zito wrote, while Trump supporters here are overwhelmingly white, their support has little to do with race. Yes, you'll always, of course, find one or two who will make race the issue. But it has a lot to do with the perceived loss of power. Not power in the way that Washington or Wall Street boardrooms view power, but power in the sense that these people see a diminishing respect for them and their ways of life. Their work ethic, their tendency not, uh, to not be mobile. Many live in the same eight square miles that their father's father's father lived in. 30 years ago, such people determined their country's standards in entertainment, music, food, clothing, politics, personal values. Today, they are people who are accused of creating every social injustice imaginable. When anything in society fails, they get blamed. Similar sentiments have been reflected in an article by Professor Joan Williams in the comparatively uh, more august Harvard Business Review, arguing... What's driving it, meaning Trump, is the class culture gap. Trump promises a world free of political correctness and a return to an era, earlier era, for many blue-collar men, and all they're asking for is basic human dignity. Now, this response should not be surprising. Cultural progressives have sought to advance the interests of traditionally marginalised people by indiscriminately demonising others. In response, culturally conservative communities are hearing that everybody can be proud of themselves, except themselves. Meanwhile, cultural progressives have undermined the foundational freedoms of our society for decades in pursuit of a ubiquitous equality. In pursuit of formal equality, such as equality before the law and equal opportunity, it is consistent with preserving our way of life. But more often than not, cultural progressives are pursuing informal equality, which is really not about equality before the law, but it's about equity before the law and equality of outcomes, which can only be achieved by undermining our institutions and our culture. The most obvious example in our domestic political context is, of course, around freedom of speech, but it's not, it's not limited just to us. A cultural expectation of political correctness that goes beyond respectfulness has seeped into our society. People are now being infantilised through the operation of safe spaces. A, cultural, a culture of stigmatisation questioning the legitimacy of others' rights to have opinions as well as, of course, those opinions themselves. Locally, we have people who are being vilified by, of course, Section 18C of the Racial Discrimination Act. And we have Bill Leake here tonight just to make sure that there's a human example. This election year, cultural conservatives have mobilised in the United States and responded in kind. And religion is part of that story because it can't be separated from culture. 
Data from the Pew Research Centre showed that there has been a noticeable rise in the number of people who have identified as different religious denominations that were also likely to vote for Trump in the 2012 election off the previous one. There was a limited increase of 1% among Protestant and white Catholics. But more interestingly, there was a 5% increase amongst Hispanic Catholics and 3% amongst white evangelicals. To ensure that I'm giving you all the data and not trying to mislead you, there were two groups where there was a drop of support for Republicans, 6% amongst Jews and 17% amongst Mormons. Certainly the latter shouldn't be surprising in light of the fact that the pre-Trump candidate was Mitt Romney. Of course, we should be careful about drawing too many conclusions from the US experience for our country. The Prime Minister is right. We are a very different country. In fact, I was having a discussion with Mike, one of the staff from the CIS before, about the fact that Australia's relatively strong natural borders, uh, uh, as well as the policies pursued by government, has meant that migration has been an important discussion, but has not overflown to the extent that it has in the United States. Cultural concerns are always amplified, though, when people feel less economically secure, and our economic circumstances are also very different. My concern is that the US has seen the germination of cultural conservative victimhood. It's a virus in response to cultural progressive victimhood. If embraced, it simply leads cultural conservatives to embrace the same tactics and approach that they have long railed against. And the objective of cultural conservatives would cease to be about unifying society around common bonds and toward points of difference and highlighting how they are losing out and therefore there needs to be a greater respect for them. The focus of debates would also shift from preserving the best of our inherited legacy toward the constant struggle for social and cultural power based on your perception of marginalisation. I am equally concerned if Australia doesn't take religious freedom seriously, we could see the same trend here. Avoiding a Trump-esque backlash in Australia requires taking religious liberty seriously in upcoming social and cultural debates. Worse that some want it to happen because they think it will be a way of mobilising a political support base. Frankly, that would be unwise. The number of Australians who identify with faith year on year has generally been in decline. There is also a rising intolerance of those without faith toward those who originally adhere to it. And in practice, we know the number of Australians who attend a weekly church service is roughly half that of the United States. A polarised debate about religion also makes honest discussion difficult. And that was something that Peter picked up in his opening remarks. The values base that the conversation starts from between differing parties varies. The centre ground in the end is hollowed out because people come from different perspectives and don't know the language or the way to approach a conversation. And we are no longer left with spaces to have constructive conversations. I was acutely aware of these risks in my former role, and that's why I was disappointed that the Australian Human Rights Commission chose to discontinue the Religious Freedom Roundtable program I commenced once I resigned my former role because it's important work. It's exactly what they should be focusing on. The power of the commission and its commissioners is to prompt conversations between parties that would not otherwise occur. 
the Religious Freedom Roundtable work was focused on how you bring people together and have a constructive conversation about the rights and freedoms of every Australian and to bring people together to drive that conversation, to take ownership and to foster an understanding of the importance of respectful pluralism. All it will do is, by, through its absence, all that will happen is amplify division between secularism and pluralism with religious communities and liberty losing as a consequence. And the future of religious liberty now hinges on engagement on how religious leaders and communities engage in the next, and I expect final, round of a debate around the civil definition of marriage. Now that the Senate voted down the plebiscite, I feel freer than I have been previously to broaden my commentary on it as a method of resolving this debate. A plebiscite was never my first preference, and I have said consistently so. I agree with Senator Dean Smith that a plebiscite established an unnerving precedent and is inconsistent with the principles of representative democracy. Remember, I'm an institutional conservative. I believe that our constitution has served us well. It rightly empowers representative democracy. Plebiscites are not a good method for outsourcing that process unless it absolutely has to be. But politically, that was the situation that was faced. And despite that, I argued for it and voted for it, and I have now discharged my responsibility to my community and my party. But I recognise the plebiscite was at one point popular, but the public turned against it, and harshly so. And I believe that what they saw was what I did when it was originally announced, that the pain of a prolonged public debate about the legal standing of fellow citizens and their relationships. And many opponents of change did themselves no favours both in the manner of their argument and the content of their argument, as well as in saying they wouldn't honour the result. The other reason it was never my first preference is because it set up a zero-sum outcome. Someone wins, someone loses. The group who should fear the loss isn't the winner, as was, I believe, to be the case. It should be the loser. No one can say with total confidence, of course, what the final result was or would be. My very strong view was always that a yes vote for change would have been successful. Put simply, most people don't really care about the issue, and amongst those who do, the strong supporters basically doubled those of the opponents. But the other reason I was confident it would succeed is because of the harshness of the argument that no case needed to run to win. In short, to win, they had to convince my parents, friends and colleagues to vote against my interests. They can send as many messages through the airwaves as they wish, but we were always going to have the advantage of human stories and personal contact. That was supported from data and analysis I've seen in the United States, where they have looked at state-by-state state, uh, votes on the issue. Data has been compared between geographic areas depending on where there was and wasn't a vote. Ground campaigns were exist or otherwise, and there were advertising campaigns. I was not aware of the data being, uh, being available publicly, so I can't quote it. But the analysis that I have seen basically showed there was always only a media, uh, where there was only a media campaign, the no campaign narrowly won. But where it was matched against a ground campaign from the yes team, it comfortably won. Doubt can be sowed through advertising, but it can't match human contact and stories. 
And that was also proven true in Ireland, where advertising was banned. And it was solely dependent on human contact, as well as a poster campaign, I've learned, of ordinary public debate and news programs. I strongly believe that permanent damage would have come to the religious communities from a successful plebiscite, win or lose, and it potentially could have been dire. In the end, the advocates for the plebiscite were predominantly from faith backgrounds, and had they lost, they set up the legitimate tool for secularists to say the Australian people had debates about these issues and had won. And as with most issues, they would then take an inch or get their inch and take it a mile and use it to justify a broader secularist agenda. And every time there was a debate about the issues of things like sexual morality and religion, secularists would have the ammunition to simply say, the country has had that debate and you lost. The question now is how we move forward on this issue, because I believe it is critical the preservation of religious freedom in Australia and whether we reach a proper respect for the rights of all. As the Prime Minister said last week, we've got to let the dust settle. There is now no opportunity to change the law this year, and I won't be pushing for it either. Yet even if you are opposed to a change in the law, it is hard to see how the debate goes away. We know that Labor and the Greens will, of course, keep pushing it, they know there are diversity of views within the coalition on the issue, though what is ignored is there are still a diversity of issues, often hidden within the Australian Labor Party. It will continue to hover around until the issue is resolved, and at some point the government will have to decide whether it wants to continue to carry the distraction it causes or deal with it so that not just the government but the country can move on. This presents religious communities with a choice. Unless you believe genuinely that the Australian Labor Party and the Greens are never going to be in government again and that they're going to abandon their or they're going to abandon their position, there will be a change in the law at some point in the future. The question is what change and who delivers it? The first option is to wait until Labor and the Greens are in government. And of course, my hope is that is a very long time away. But we live in unpredictable times, as I think most of us would concede after last week. We know what Labor and the Greens in government will do. They will change the legal definition of marriage to a union between two people. Ministers of religion, of course, won't be compelled to marry same-sex couples because that would breach the Constitution. There will be no further recognition of religious liberty. It will be the hard landing of a secularist solution. The second option is that those opposed push for the plebiscite again. Personally, I think that is utterly pointless. And as I have outlined, I think it poses very serious and permanent risks to religious liberty. The third option is that those opposed seek a hard landing by proposing a law that won't be accepted by the parliament, and even if it does, keeps the debate raging. The classic example is the pursuit of allowing the law to use religious freedom to justify people exempting bakers and florists from supplying goods and services to couples entering marriage they disagree with. This is a hard landing solution because it simply creates uh, targets that Labor and the Greens will pursue when they are in government in the future. Nothing will be settled, the debate will rage, and frankly, in the end, the secularists will win. The fourth, and my preferred option, is that the dust settles for the coalition to implement a soft settlement 
through a change in the law that takes account of the concerns of both religious communities and same-sex couples. One of the problems in having the broader discussion to defend religious liberty is that the threats are opaque. They are connected to individuals and institutions facing punishment, or at least fearing punishment, for continuing to exercise their view that marriage is a union between a man and a woman. For the most part, I think this fear won't be realised, but I do accept that there have been examples which have arisen, such as people losing their jobs because of their past support for the status quo, such as the case of Brendan Icke in Mozilla in the United States, or being dragged before an anti-discrimination board, such as the case of Archbishop Julian Porteous in Tasmania. There is also a fear that religious institutions will be compelled to promote the civil definition of marriage and face exclusion or punishment if they do not. All these cases do is reinforce the need for a peaceful and mutually respectful settlement over a protracted conflict. That is unless the objective is to create martyrs. In my last role, I started that conversation by working with people from different sides of the debate. It started when I reached out to Patrick Parkinson from the University of Sydney, and together we discussed a proposal for a sensible, soft settlement to the issue. And over a period of weeks and months, we developed amendments to the law that started from an understanding that the law was going to change and the object objective was not to have a one side gets all or gets 100% of what they wanted and the other zero. Instead, it was focused on how we can get both sides around 80% of what they want. We worked through every section of the Act and importantly, when requests for amendments were made, we asked what it was the amendment was designed to achieve and if it was unsatisfactory to the other party, how it could then be achieved in a different way. There were aspects of the proposal that frankly I disagreed with, but it started a conversation that desperately needs to be held now and provided a pathway then, in the same way it provides a foundation for a discussion into the future. I wish we could say we were trailblazers, but unknown to both of us, I think, certainly me, similar work was being pursued by Douglas Laycock from the University of Virginia in the United States around a similar time. He tried to reach a settlement to enlarge the debate around marriage to secure religious liberty in the United States, but it was rebuffed primarily by evangelical groups. And of course, we know what happened. In the meantime, the US Supreme Court handed down Oberfell versus Hodges and framed the terms of the next stage of this debate, and part of it being principally a lengthy legal debate through the courts around the role of religious liberty in American society. It isn't just religious communities that face a big choice. The gay and lesbian community or LGBTI community faces choices too. The choice is whether they want the debate to end or whether some have sufficiently absorbed the victim mentality that pervaded the plebiscite discussion that they want to use this as issue in the end as a proxy war for historical grievances against religious institutions. I will always stand up and say that is not a sensible way forward, especially if you want to avoid a backlash and particularly if you want a soft settlement. So what does a soft settlement look like? It starts with a humble recognition of the legitimacy of each other's concerns and motivations, that there is a civil tradition of marriage and that laws can be made about it without, uh, with the permission of the Australian Constitution. And where the same-sex couples can enter into it is based on the decision of the Parliament. Same-sex couples want to enter into it because of both the legal and cultural power it holds, 
legal because it does grant certain rights that are not extended to unmarried couples, though we have to accept they are few in this country. Cultural, because we place a cultural significance to marriage in our society. It's about an equal investment, where marriage has lots of dimensions, but its cultural power exceeds its legal power. We don't look at de facto couples as akin to marriage, and nor couples with civil partnerships or unions. Marriage means something, and that is a good thing, and we should encourage it. But there is also a tradition of marriage that comes from different religious traditions, and that all government can do is respect and treat it equally to the civil tradition. In many traditions, it can't include same-sex couples, though we also need to recognise that views on that are evolving. A law that respects and recognises this important divergence is essential to a soft settlement. It provides the security that the law reflects the values both base of both secular and faith traditions and ensures that religious institutions can teach their faith tradition of marriage and be utterly consistent with the law. If religious communities also engage in negotiating a passage of the law, they can also um, contribute by securing protections to allay their fears about being legally pursued for expressing their views. From where I stand, I can only guarantee one more chance to pursue a soft settlement during this term of parliament. The burden of its passage comes down to the way that religious communities and leaders engage with the debate. If it is with humility, that re religious freedom can win. But without it, a hard uh, outcome will likely be imposed in the not too distant future. And as offered in the past, I am happy to be a partner to deliver that soft settlement under a coalition government. Because done properly, it can provide the opportunity to build new foundations for a pluralist approach and push back against the tide of secularism that risks undermining religious freedom in 21st century Australia with the objective of taking society forward together. Thank you. Thank you.